a perfect lead-in to our time in the Word this morning. So if you do have a Bible and want to go to Mark chapter 10, then feel free to do that. While you're finding that, just a little personal background even from my life and Heather's life. We, and I think Bob mentioned this last night, we're living in New Orleans when a, a lady named Katrina came to visit us and sent our house underwater. We lost everything we had in that process. And I remember looking at Heather after that, and, and we weren't, I mean, I was just finishing seminary. She was teaching school. I was serving on staff at a church that had 150 there on a good Sunday. And so we, we didn't have an extravagant lifestyle, but I remember telling Heather, hey, this is our chance to really start over from the very beginning and, and build, build possessions of what we really need. And, and so we talked about that. And then during the next months, this large church in Birmingham uh, starts talking to me about coming to pastor there. The Lord leads us there. And so within a year after Katrina, we found ourselves living in Birmingham in a larger house than we ever have had had anywhere close to it with more possessions and more comforts in this world than we had ever had. And I remember sitting there thinking that somewhere along the way I was missing the point. So in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the church world, it was, it was living the dream. But I had this sinking feeling inside that I was losing grasp on sufficiency in Christ and finding much more security and sufficiency in the things that this world offers, even in the church. And, and I would look at passages like these that were mentioned last night or we're talking about today, and, and it's all over the New Testament especially. And, and I would think, my, my life doesn't make sense when it's put next to this, and the church that I pastor, in so many ways doesn't make sense. Like, do I really believe this book? Does the church I pastor, do we really believe this? Like, is this the Jesus we are really following? We're just playing a game. Just just what we do in Alabama for ourselves. Are we really following him? And so we began to walk through texts like these and others. There's so much, so much more. I'm trying to summarize even last night and this morning some of these, some of these things. But we walk through, we do a, a periodically just a six hour, uh, six to midnight or turns into closer to seven hours, uh, seven hour straight Bible study uh, periodically during the year where we just dive into the word. And we did one on the gospel possessions and prosperity where we basically walked through from cover to cover in scripture, just the essentials, a biblical theology of possessions that then leads to some practical applications of how that plays out. And so I'm, I'm hitting on things here and there that are in that. If you have, I, I don't ever recommend anybody listen to me preach. I think my sermons are good sleeping material. So uh, but I would put this out there if it would be helpful to you at all, if it would serve you, uh, radical.net uh, slash possessions. You can go to that site and you'll, you'll find, and it's, it's six hours, but it's, it's four or five hours of teaching. Um, and it's, you got audio, video, and then it's written out so you don't have to listen to me. Um, but if that would be helpful to you, just a biblical, the that was, that was my shot at a, a condensed biblical theology of possessions that leads to practical applications. So if that would be helpful. Um, there's just so much more that can be said. I feel like at every point in this, I'm thinking, oh, but I need to say that and that and that. But 
I trust that the Holy Spirit will take his word and apply it appropriately. So four truths we saw last night. Jesus' call to salvation demands radical surrender. His call to salvation involves radical commands. His call to salvation includes radical grace, and we must see the gospel, not guilt, as the primary motivation for giving to the poor. Truth number five, we need to understand our use of money and possessions in the context of redemptive history. Okay, that was a long one, but this is so key. We need to understand our use of money and possessions in the context of redemptive history. So we come back to this scene in Mark chapter 10. You put yourself in the disciples' shoes. When they hear Jesus' conversation with this man, the text says they were shocked and amazed to hear these words from Jesus. Why? And the answer is found in redemptive history, in Old Testament history. Throughout the Old Testament, God had blessed his people's obedience with material possessions. I could take you on a tour all throughout the Old Testament, starting with Abraham and the patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, where God gave them promises of material reward for spiritual obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 28 sums it up, very beginning of that chapter. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you, be, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So hear this. God is promising his people material blessing for spiritual obedience. And so we see these kind, and then we see that coming to fruition, promised land, land flowing with milk and honey, abundant physical blessing. And it only gets more so when you get into the, the kings. I mean, Solomon, incredibly wealthy. God blessed him. And what was God doing there? In all of these things, God was forming a people and establishing them in a place, in a land with a temple, Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8, extravagant blessing, uh, material blessing surrounding this picture of the dedication of the temple. There would be a display of the glory of God at the ends of the earth. So we see that all throughout the Old Testament. So you've got that background. When you come to Mark chapter 10, You've got a, a rich man, likely a ruler in the synagogue, comes to Jesus and he says, well, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus looks at him and says, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor? If you're in the disciples' shoes, you're, you're shocked. You thought obedience to God led to acquiring possessions on earth. And now Jesus is saying to this man, obedience means abandoning possessions on earth. This is a major shift that is going on here that they're, they're seeing take place right in front of their eyes. Now, it's, it's, I don't intend to, this is one of those places where I want to give so many cautions because I don't want to pit the Old Testament against the New Testament in this picture. There are many truths about wealth and stewardship that are in the Old Testament that are reflected clearly in the New Testament. But this one is not. Follow this. Material reward for spiritual obedience is never promised in the New Testament. And once. It is all throughout the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. Craig 
Blomberg wrote a great biblical theology of possessions called Neither Poverty Nor Riches. And he said the New Testament carried forward the major principles of the Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism with one conspicuous omission. Never was material wealth promised as a guaranteed reward for either spiritual obedience or simple hard work. Material reward for piety never reappears in Jesus' teaching. And in fact, it is explicitly contradicted throughout. And that was revolutionary scandalous even in Jesus's day, and it is revolutionary scandalous in the church today because much of our theology of possessions is built on Old Testament truths that in this sense, material reward, reward, spiritual obedience is absolutely not reflected in the New Testament. To say that following Christ involves not acquiring but giving away possessions as Christians in the church, that That's unheard of in contemporary, affluent Christian practice. And the reason is because so much of what we think is based on Old Testament views, wealth and possessions, that God blesses our obedience by giving us stuff. And we're still operating like God is giving us stuff to build places as a display for his glory in all nations. Every year, Christians in America spend over $10 billion on church buildings. Just our country alone, the amount of real, real estate owned by churches is worth over $230 billion. And it's the sign of God's blessing to build a bigger building as a church. And we think, well, we're in the line of Solomon and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David before that. But no, that line takes a radical shift in Jesus. Jesus doesn't promise material reward for spiritual obedience. Instead, he calls us in obedience to give, to sacrifice for the sake of others. And God does not give us possessions in the New Testament to build temples for the display of his glory in the nations. In the New Testament, we are the temple. And you're the temple. Not to pay any money to build. You and me. We don't spend all of our resources building places for the display of God's glory to the nations. We spend all of our resources as people giving our lives for the spread of God's glory among the nations. And that's a very, very different way to look at, at things. So the, the picture is, God's plan is not to display his glory through us having higher standards of living than the rest of the world. God's plan is to spread his glory through the sacrifice of our lives for the rest of the world. That is all over the New Testament. And we must view our money possessions in the context of redemptive history. Next truth, sixth truth. We need to realize the dangerous, deadly nature of desire for possessions. We need to realize the dangerous, deadly nature of desire for possessions. The reality is most people in our culture and in likely in much of the church just don't believe Jesus on Matthew, Mark chapter 10. When we hear Jesus say that wealth is a barrier to entering the kingdom, we just don't believe him. We are accustomed to viewing wealth, affluence, comfort, possessions in terms of blessings. We don't think of them in terms of barriers. But Jesus is saying wealth can be a barrier. Now, I want to be very clear here. Nowhere in scripture do we see money or wealth in and of itself looked at as bad. The Bible never teaches that money or wealth is inherently evil. But the Bible does give us very strong warnings 
against the desire for possessions. Not just in Jesus here, in the church. It's Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me read briefly. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. This is the New Testament church now, the way this is playing out. He says, now there is great gain and godliness with contentment, which we'll come back to. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do we hear what Paul is saying here? What the Bible's teaching here? Materialism is deceptive. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trap, Paul says. Materialism is like drinking seawater. You're thirsty, you see water, you say, yes, okay, I want to drink that. But the more seawater you drink, you know, the more thirsty you become. And though it is not good for you, you still crave it. You fall into a snare. You begin to drink it and you begin to dehydrate. And if you keep drinking, you get headaches and dry mouth and low blood pressure, a rapid heart rate. Eventually you become delirious, you go unconscious, and you die by drinking water. It's amazing. You think that's what I need, but then you drink it. Unbeknownst to you, you kill yourself. And that is materialism. You see things, you think, I want that, I want to pursue that, but you don't realize it's a snare. And the more you indulge it, the more it will kill your soul. Dangerous. Materialism is deceptive, dangerous, leads you into many senseless, harmful desires. Verses 17 through 19 in 1 Timothy 6 just flesh out how riches create in us. And me, I see it, self-sufficiency and a self-confidence and a self-centeredness that are dangerous to our souls. It's not just deceptive and dangerous. Materialism is damning. The desire for riches plunges men into ruin and destruction. This is serious language, brothers and sisters. This is very serious language. And this is just the desire for riches. What happens when riches already have parts of our hearts? Mark this down. Remember this. Your, you know, we know this. Our possessions will always let us down at the most important point of our life when we die. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Materialism is damning. So catch this, the Bible is saying, give away money and possessions, not just out of concern for others, although that is certainly there all over scripture, but out of concern for your own soul. Because money in the hands of sinful men and women is a very, very, very dangerous thing. So here this morning, you put your heart and things, possessions, stuff, wealth in this world, it will destroy you. And the whole time you will think you are okay. We need to realize the dangerous, deadly nature of desire for possessions. Seventh truth. All right, we're going to start to bring this back up. You ready? Let's bring this up. We need to come up from this. Okay. Seventh truth. 
Jesus does not want to take away our pleasure. He wants to satisfy us with his treasure. Okay, so now we're bringing it up. He doesn't want to take away our pleasure. He wants to satisfy us with his treasure. I love this about Mark chapter 10. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You catch this. Jesus is not calling this rich young man away from treasure. He's calling him to treasure. There's almost a tinge of self-serving motivation in Jesus' invitation. Jesus is saying, sell, give it all away, and get, get treasure, better treasure. Jesus is not saying, don't care about treasure. Jesus is saying, care about real treasure. What's real treasure? Start caring. Be smart. Which which do you want? Short-term treasures that you cannot keep or long-term treasures that you will never lose? Which is, which is wiser? This is where we realize materialism is not just sinful. Materialism is stupid. Right? And, and sacrifice is smart. Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That just makes sense. I know there are wise investors all around this room. This is an investment worth making. And any other kind of investment in more stuff, pleasures, things in this world is not worth making. It's foolish. It's guaranteed to fail. This is treasure that will never, ever, ever fail. And he's calling us to gain. That's why why Paul said in, in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, great gain. That's what we're after in this room. We want gain. So let's follow this self-serving motivation for a minute here, realizing that this is God receives glory in our satisfaction. We're after gain in this room, great gain. So how do we find great gain? Godliness with contentment, Paul says. The path to great gain is not indulgence in the world, but contentment in God. So how do you fight? How do we fight the increasing desire for more things in this world. Here's how. You fight increasing desire for more things in this world with increasing delight in the God over this world. And the more we are satisfied in him, content in him, and he will show himself faithful for that. Then we fight desire for trinkets that this world offers. It's like C.S. Lewis who said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. Just add stuff to that. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition. When infinite joy has been offered us, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Then he says these words. Sister says, we are far too easily pleased. We think more things, bigger house, nicer car, more possessions, more security, more safety net. We think this, this will satisfy. We're playing with mud pies and a slum. And there is infinite joy offered us over here. And we, we, are, we are pleased with this. And our problem is not that we want too much. It's that we want too little. And we have tasted just the stuff of this world. 
no matter how great it is, and we think that's going to do it. And the reality is there is so much more. Jesus is not wanting to strip us of pleasure, take away our pleasure. He wants to satisfy us with his, his treasure. Eighth truth. Jesus desires to free us from bondage to ourselves and bondage to our stuff. So I want you to see how that seventh truth just leads us to a glorious freedom. Jesus desires to free us from bondage to ourselves and bondage to our stuff. So here's the picture. This rich young man in Mark chapter 10 walks away from Jesus. And maybe one of the most tragic pictures in all of the New Testament, a man walking away from infinite treasure, holding on to earthly possessions. And there's a contrast, though. We get a glimpse, and I didn't read this last night, of the disciples right after this. They were astonished, and they're talking with him. And Peter said, we have left everything and followed you. And in verse 29 of Mark chapter 10, Jesus said so to, a, to these disciples who had abandoned their lives to follow Christ, who had done the opposite of what the rich young man had done, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So this, that part, I want just to be the foundation for these last, last three truths here. Starting with Jesus desiring to free us from bondage to ourselves and bondage to this, uh, our stuff. See the contrast between a rich young man holding on to his stuff, Peter saying we've let go of everything. And that's that's what Jesus is calling us to, a freedom. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy chapter 6, when he talks about godliness with contentment being great gain. And when he says contentment, two verses later, he says, I'm content with food and clothing. Paul says, I don't need a lot of stuff when I have contentment in God. And this is wonderful when the gospel transforms our heart. We are free to live Simply, we're free from the rat race, running after more and more and more, bigger, better. We're free from that. We're content. We have God. What is doing? Yeah, I guess I need to eat and wear something. There's a contentment here with the necessities of life. First Timothy chapter six is teaching that Christians can and ought to be content with simple necessities in life, which is a very different way to live in a culture of accumulation that's built on more and more, bigger, better. Christians say, they say, we don't need more. We don't need more. We're free to live simply and then out of the overflow of that to give sacrificially, which is where Paul goes at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. Live simply, give sacrificially. Oh, what a great way to put it. Work like a doctor, live like a nurse. This is John, John Wesley. In 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so he could give more money to the poor. He records that one year his income was 30 pounds and his living expenses were 28, so he had two pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds and gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28 pounds, giving 62 away. Fourth year, he made 120 pounds lived on 28 and gave away 92 pounds to the poor. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, 
but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian Christian standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. He began this practice at Oxford, continued it throughout his life. Even when his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, he gave away all but 30. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth. So the money went out in charity as quickly as it came in. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins to be found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime, he had given away. Current day's wages, he was making at the end, there about $160,000 a year, living on about $20,000 a year. Now people say, that's weird. Why would someone do that? Here's why, because godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Most people would scoff at that, but what is the picture here? What if a $100,000 salary does not necessitate a $100,000 lifestyle? What if it's possible for us to be a content people in God, to set a simple strategic cap on our lifestyles, to leave the rat race behind and live like godliness with contentment is great gain? And here's where it gets really exciting. When the Lord does entrust a lot of money with us, you, people say to me, well, you, do you encourage people not to make money and work hard at Brook Hills? No, they say make a lot of money and work really hard. But don't think that that necessitates a standard of living increase. Realize that biblically this necessitates and compels, gladly compels a standard of giving increase. So make tons of money and tell the church our pastor, Make time, work hard. And as you do, use it for the glory of God in all nations. And show the world in the process that we have something better than the stuff everyone around us is running after. Isn't it true that non-Christians, don't they look at us and see, well, you've, you've got the same things, lifestyle, you're running after the same things that I am, you just tack Jesus on on Sunday. Let's show them there's something else different here. That Jesus has freed us from bondage to ourselves and bondage to our stuff to live simply, to give sacrificially. So, ninth truth. The cost of discipleship is great. But the cost of non-discipleship is much greater. The cost of discipleship is great. But the cost of non-discipleship is much greater. So does it cost to follow Jesus? Do, do texts like these cause us to think, man, that's a hard message. I don't know if I can take that message. I don't know if people will take that. I mean, is that, that seems hard. And yes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a classic book, Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Cost of discipleship is great. So the cost cost of following Jesus, like we're talking about here, like we're seeing here, is great. But realize, the cost of not following Jesus like this is far, far, far greater. That cost is certainly greater for millions upon millions of people who continue without the gospel in the world today while we sit back and soak in the comforts of our churches and more programs and stuff for us. The cost is, is, is steep for brothers and sisters around the world who are starving while we spend 
so much of our church budgets on ourselves. But it's not just a cost for the lost and it's not just a cost for the poor, it's a cost for us. The casual, comfortable, mediocre, nominal even in many cases, Christian life misses out on so much. That's what Jesus says. Anyone who's left these things for my sake and the gospel will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and then in the age to come, which we'll talk about in a second. A hundredfold. You give this and you receive a hundredfold. This is why Hudson Taylor, after all of his years of service as a missionary in China, came back and said, I've never made a sacrifice. He never made a sacrifice. When he realizes what was out there, he can imagine not doing that. And think, think about the church that I pastor. We were walking through the book of James, and James will mess you up because you can't just like, listen to the word. You have to do it. And, and so, so we come to, to passages about, about orphans, and, and that just launches us into foster care and orphan stuff that we're doing all over the city. And then we come to James chapter 2, right around the time we're doing church budget, which is my least favorite time as a pastor. I, I hate church budget season because it is where we come face to face as a church with how little we believe this gospel. I mean, I, how can we believe this gospel and spend so much on ourselves? And so, so we come to James 2, right in the middle of budget season. And what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. One of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is that? Same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's dead. Some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Faith that works, dead. Saying to brothers and sisters around the world, we wish you well, we'll pray for you, doing nothing about physical needs. What kind of faith is that? And so we began, we began looking. We, we had, uh, at that point that year, we had a little over $500,000 surplus that had accumulated during the year by God's grace in our budget. And so, so we said, and, and everybody had been saying, well, let's save that for a rainy day. And we were like, there's brothers and sisters got rainy days going on right now. And so we said, how can we, how can we give this away for urgent spiritual and physical need around the, around the world? We've worked with Compassion that's right up the street here on some different things. And, and, uh, and Compassion that does a lot of child sponsorship, but they also have these child survival programs where, um, where basically they found that in many of the communities where they were not doing child sponsorship, where they were doing child sponsorship, some of the kids were not living to age four or five when kids are eligible for that. They were dying in infancy in the first couple of years of birth. So they did these child survival programs to help children in these communities through local churches live and make it to four or five. And so, so we, we said, we've done a lot in India. So we said, do you have any in India that needs sponsoring? And, and, and a child survival program was like $25,000 to sponsor one of those. And and so we said, do you have any in India? And they, they sent us this, this list of, of the ones they had in India. And it was, I think, 21 of them. And, uh, and so we started praying, well, which one, which one should we take? And then stepped back and said, well, 21, $25,000 piece. That's a little over $500,000. Well, why don't we just take them all? And so we called it compassion. We're like, we'll take India for 525, please. <laughs> and, and the church said, yes. And, and, then, and then, then we came to the regular budget. That was just surplus, came to the regular budget. said, so what are we doing? All the stuff that we're spending our 
money on. So we got the staff together and said, we're cutting across the board. Just cut everywhere you can. We're freeing up as much as we can for urgent spiritual and physical need in the world. And then we started going. I mean, it was like a competition to see who could cut the most. And our worship ministry cut 83% of the budget out, which shows we had some fluff to deal with anyway. But 83% budget gone. Big things, little things. Uh, we got razzed because uh, children's ministry, preschool, we, we gave all these assortments of snacks on Sunday morning. We were like, we don't need all these assortments of snacks. Let's cut, let's cut down some here. And so we cut goldfish out of the budget, which it was so funny because a few weeks after that, uh, we were driving home and a little uh, five-year-old uh, in the back seat. And uh, he, I said, how was church today, buddy? He said, well, we didn't have any goldfish, daddy. And Heather's sitting in the front seat. She said, well, son, that's your daddy's fault. And so... <laughs> Little things, little things. Uh, but the church realizing, hey, God's freed us up to give. And, and, and praise God for his leadership by his spirit, through his word, his grace, in causing people who have much to give. And as a result of that, okay, so as a result of that, you got we got unreached people groups that have been engaged with the gospel. We got, we got children of our brothers and sisters that are living now that were dying before. And, and it's not just them. We got joy, so much more joy than the next program we had or next event we had to revolve around ourselves. The cost of discipleship is great. The cost of non-discipleship, far, far, far greater. Last truth, our lives will count on earth only when our eyes are fixed on heaven. Our lives will count on earth only when our eyes are fixed on heaven. So Jesus says, you'll have all these things, not just here, but in the age to come, eternal life. The key to, we're going to call it radical living, the key to radical living. I think this is the key. The key to radical living is realizing that this world is not our home. This is the key, because if we think this world's our home, then we'll live like everybody else in the world. When we realize we're here for an instant, like vapor, here, gone. When we realize that, that transforms the way we live. We got 70, maybe 80 or so years on this earth, if we are blessed to have that long of life, and during that time, we are bombarded with the temporary. Make money, get stuff, be comfortable, live well, have fun. And in the middle of it all, we are blinded to eternal realities. But it's there, brothers and sisters, we stand on the porch of eternity. There's a day coming very, very, very soon for every single one of us. Could be today, for all we know, where we will stand before God to give an account for the stewardship of our time and our resources and our gifts, ultimately the gospel that's been entrusted to us. And when that day comes, we will not wish we had given more of ourselves to living the American dream. We will not wish we had we'd acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more TV, pursued greater retirement, been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we we wish that we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation and tribe and people and language will gather around the throne of Christ our Savior and sing his praises in eternal delight. That is a dream worth living for. It's a dream worth giving our lives for. I'll close with this. It's a letter that I received from someone who had 
come to Brook Hills. Dear Dr. Platt and the church at Brook Hills, I assume based on what others have said about you and the faith family at Brook Hills that you are accustomed to receiving complimentary letters. I hope that you will indulge me as I write to you from a different perspective. My letter can be considered more of a complaint or a warning. I get these every once in a while. <laughs> it is intended to enlighten you as to how your radical actions and teachings related to God's word have been destroying my life and probably the lives of others like me. Let me explain. I was raised unchurched by loving parents who were perfectly content with their lives. The worldly perspective I, I grew up with allowed me to see the hypocrisy and the lives of the few church-going families to which I had been exposed. Thus, as I grew into a worldly man, I found myself on the path to the American dream. This path, as far as I could see, did not go through or even near a church. I went to college, then grad school, married a kind and beautiful woman, got a decent, respectable job, which allowed me to ultimately buy a house or at least make payments on a mortgage and make maximum contributions to a 401k. My wife and I had eventually had a, fa eventually had a family with two beautiful daughters and a couple of dogs. I was living the middle-class version of the American dream. I was a kind, decent family man, grounded in the realities of this world. I was perfectly content to devote myself to working hard to provide the financial resources my family would need. 401k retirement plan, 529 college savings plan, a general savings account, and a vacation savings account. I also worked to provide the necessities of life, such as a flat screen TV. My charitable giving should, could be described as minimal at best. I loved my family and loved spending time with them, but I was constantly distracted by the financial realities and needs in our life. I looked to my balance statements for a sense of security. Like many good, worldly men devoted to getting ahead in this world, I would find moments of joy when the quarterly 401k statement showed a profit. I also experienced pronounced periods of stress, disappointment, and anger when the 401k dropped or when we had to take money out of savings to pay the bills. However, I accepted these ups and downs as the realities of life. And overall, we were doing okay until one day my wife, who I thought loved me, told me that she would like to raise our daughters in a church and requested that we start visiting local churches. Up to this point in my life, I had done a good job of avoiding churches and the hypocritical Christians who attended them. I'd always felt uncomfortable around these Christians because I lacked biblical knowledge and assumed they would look down upon me. Now, in order to make my wife happy, I was going to have to attend a church and interact with those people on their turf. I reluctantly agreed and added church to my list of dreaded weekend chores. Initially, our trial run at visiting churches proved relatively painless. The people were nice, but the watered-down version of the word which they were serving had little impact and left me with no desire for more. My wife, who was also unimpressed by these experiences, suggested we try Brook Hills because she'd heard good things about this church. Well, if attending a regular church was bad, I was sure attending a megachurch would be worse. However, as usual, my wife convinced me and we attended your church for the first time last fall. That day was the start of a process in which you and your faith family have been progressively destroying my life in this world. The word you served up that day was strong and pure, not like the watered-down versions I had received in the past. It had an immediate impact on me, and like the most addictive of drugs, left me wanting more. We started to attend fairly regularly on Sundays, but soon that was not enough to satisfy my growing need for more of this word. I started buying CDs of previous sermons so that I could get my fix on the way to and from work each day. I started to interact with more with members of this faith family who were not only consuming the word, but also appeared to be living it as well. This only fueled my desire for more. You and this faith family seemed all too happy to encourage and support my newfound habit. As I got deeper and deeper into this addiction, a side effect known as faith began to grow inside me. As my faith grew, I felt a greater need for fellowship with others who were suffering with the same faith. All along, I was gradually losing my grip on the realities of this world, which had been my foundation, and I came to Christ. I cannot believe what the word in this, 
and what Christ has done in my life over the last year. I used to avoid church altogether. Now we attend the worship services on Sundays and have joined a small group which meets for three to five hours every week at a neighbor's house. I used to avoid Christians who profess their faith and now I have become one. I now find myself seeking opportunities to share the word and share Christ with others. I stopped saving for the flat screen TV, which is just as well since I don't have much time for TV anymore. I have reduced my 401k contributions and stopped looking at the quarterly statements. I've gone from trying to save as much as I could to try to find the ways to give our savings away, some of our savings away, in addition to regular contributions to the church and other, other means. Strangely enough, this brings me greater joy than I ever experienced with a quarterly 401k statement showing a profit. What is wrong with me? It's lunacy. What have you done to me? The worldly man I was a year ago would not recognize the man I am becoming. I was a man believing in the realities of this world, living the American dream, saving up riches for a comfortable future, and looking for security and a strong bottom line. Now I believe in, pray to, and seek after a relationship with a God I cannot see. I have found salvation in Christ who I cannot see. I long for eternity and an unseen future creation. All of this would have sounded like foolishness to the man I was a year ago. However, the man I was a year ago and the worldly life I knew are being destroyed, and I wanted you and the faith family at Brook Hills to be aware of the role you have played in destroying my worldly life. I also feel the need to warn you that if you persist in teaching and living out the word as you are doing currently, then you will likely have a similar impact on the worldly lives of others like me. I hope you realize that you may have to live with the knowledge of your actions and their effects on the lives of others for all of eternity. I will be there to remind you of what you have done. Let's show the world there's another way. Let's show the church there's another way. May God give us grace and by the power of the gospel absolutely transform our perspective on riches for our good, for many others' good, and ultimately for his glory.